This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. What's up, Hardwood Knox listeners? In case you haven't heard, Blue Wire Studios just dropped their first original podcast, Golden Goal. The show gives you 10-minute episodes all about soccer legends and the moments that made them. Whether you're just learning about soccer for the first time or a diehard fan, this podcast is a great listen for everyone. The final two episodes are live right now, or you can binge the entire season to learn about your favorite soccer stars. Check out Blue Wire's Golden Goal, available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Hey yo, Hardwood Knox listeners, I am Dan Favalli, coming at you at the start of an official new era of Hardwood Knox. As some of you may have noticed, Adam Frommel, a founding member of Hardwood Knox, uh, way, way back when we started and these were only on YouTube and were even worse, if you can believe it, than they are now, he is returning in an official capacity. So he is now the co-host of the Hardwood Knox podcast, once again, follow him on Twitter. Welcome him back at Frommel09. Uh, he works for Bleach Report. He's an editor. He's also the founder and editor-in-chief of NBA Math, which often hosts this podcast or every hosts every single one of these podcasts. This also means that Andy Bailey will no longer be a member of Hardwood Knox. We wish him well. You can still check out his work at Bleacher Report. We hope Anyone who was stumbled across this because they were members of his jazz following, we hope you stick around. We do work really hard to pump out content, but we are moving forward. I'm excited. There'll be more guests. Um, Adam will have some on himself. I'll have some on myself as, as we normally do. And these collective pods will continue to be awesome. Speaking of which, we are going to chug along with our decade rankings series. And we're up to the New Orleans Pelicans. Before we get started... Just a shout out to our sponsor, as always, for making this podcast possible, betonline.ag. And most importantly, officially, publicly, welcome back, Adam. I'm excited, and I hope you are excited. Oh, it's good to be back. It, it's hard to believe how much has transpired since we first started this thing. I mean, it was, what, what was it, like six or seven years ago now that we were we were doing the first episodes, and... And like you said, publishing them on YouTube for 100 people to check out and getting excited if, if 300 people did. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's been through multiple states, through multiple jobs, through so much stuff. But it's uh, I'm excited to to get to rejoin in this capacity and uh, and to continue trying to produce good content here. I'm, I'm again, as I mentioned already, I'm excited as well. And it's for us, it's nice to reflect from those days, which probably like 2016, 2015, around that point. On YouTube, audio quality was way worse. And now, here we are, 2020. We're in Bleacher Report Team Stream. The podcast is popping up there. You founded a, a popular statistical uh, website around NBA data. It's 
it's been a ride and I'm excited to con- continue going with it. And I'm glad to be sharing it with you. I'm glad you're back. And I'm probably not as glad to start talking about the best Pelicans players of, of the decade. This was a fun one because it allowed us to be creative with who we chose. And we both said before we recorded that we took this as an opportunity because so many of the longest tenured players were not the highest impact players, I would say. It was an opportunity to just delve into the one season guys and, and give them then rank rankings. And so I, I took that as flexibility and license throughout this process. I did the same. We've we've talked throughout every one of these episodes, and I, we're probably pushing closer to 20 or so in this series at this point, about the thereness concept, just how much time a player has spent on the court for the franchise in question, for the decade in question, which is 2010-11 through the present day. Uh, I think this is the least attention I've I've paid to the thereness factor in any of them, because like you said, you know, we had so many role players who didn't do much. We'll talk about one of them at the very end who is third in games played, sixth in minutes played, and didn't appear on a single ballot either for us or for any of the fan submissions. There are a couple other members of the top 10 in thereness who aren't really going to receive much love whatsoever aside from the back end of a couple fan ballots because there are so many intriguing one-season players, including guys who you might typically think of in higher standing for this franchise like David West and Chris Paul, who only have one season of eligibility for these particular rankings just because the end of their tenures happened to coincide with the start of this decade. So this was a fun one and a weird one. I enjoyed it, and I think one of the reasons why the the Pelicans had to be tackled in this way is because they traded their franchise superstar basically at the top of the decade, and so that almost invites turnover thereafter. At the same time, though, there was this rush to sort of – rebuild around Anthony Davis and become this competitor right away because he was ready right away. And in doing so that created more turnover because of how many iterations backfired or, or how many moves were, were mishandled. And so, yeah, there were some players that stayed on the team, but they either weren't the players they were supposed to be. They wildly underachieved, they battled injuries. And so that caused them to go look at guys elsewhere. And so it just, it was, I would, I don't want to say it was a turbulent decade, but it definitely wasn't one necessarily rooted in, in continuity. Given the quality of the names that are going to populate these rankings, it's somewhat staggering that the franchise only has three playoff appearances in the last decade and has won just a single playoff series. Like It's it's difficult to fully wrap your head around that, and unless I guess you're a New Orleans fan who has had to live through the mediocrity treadmill, but Anthony Davis, that the last part of the Chris Paul era, Uh, The beginning of the Zion Williamson, Brandon Ingram era, it just hasn't resulted in postseason success. And even this year, as we as the the restart of the season looms, like we don't know if the Pelicans are are going to be a playoff team, especially since Zion left the bubble. How many games is he going to end up missing? I might have I probably would have picked them to make the eight seed, but this is just throws more variance into the equation. Can you briefly take us through once again how the process works before we get into the number 10 player? As always, we asked you, the fans, the listeners, to submit your top 10 ballots for the last decade, and a lot of you came through for us, so thank you as always for that. We combined all those into a composite fan ranking, and then that was treated as one component alongside my votes and Dan's votes, and those were all combined to form the overall composite rankings, which is what we're basing the order of this podcast on. So 11 people 
appeared in the top tens of either the composite fan vote, my my own ballot, or Dan's ballot. And I think we have to start with number 11, even though he just missed the cut here. Um, he appeared eighth on the fans' vote. He did not appear on either my ballot or Dan's ballot, though I would imagine that Dan, like myself, gave serious consideration because his 19 games have been that stellar. And it's Zion Williamson. Uh, for me, as exciting, as magnetic as his play has been, only 19 games. You know, it, it's the same. It's the same discussion as the rookie of the year race against John Morant. Like, what do you do when the quality is so high but the sample size is so small? And even though we gave credence to a number of one-season players, there's a difference between one season of 50 or so games, 60 or so games, even 82 games, and and 19 games. Yeah, I mean, I was so tempted to put him in there, but I, as you already mentioned at the top, there were a ton of quality players who their tenures weren't long, but they were there for an entire season and had more than 19 appearances under their belt. For what he means to the franchise and for what he's done on the court already, I totally understand if he's someone's number 10, wherever they want it. I don't, it'd be ridiculous if you're saying Zion's number five already to me. I totally get putting him in there, but I do think there was enough, here comes one of the favorite words, optionality, where you, you probably should have went with with others. I mean, Greg Stiesma has logged more minutes in a Pelicans uniform this decade than Zion Williamson. And I think that ultimately has to matter. Sorry, who? Greg Stiesma. It's a name I haven't heard in a long time. Uh, Zion actually did get a first place vote from the fans, just so you know. And it didn't seem like it was a troll ballot either. Um, just given that Chris Paul, Anthony Davis, Drew Holiday, and Brandon Ingram joined him in the top five on that ballot and all 10 spots seem to be taken seriously. But I think that that like, goes to show just how much he already means to this fan base and to this franchise. He appeared in every spot except fourth on at least one fan ballot uh, during the oh, voting wow. process. Yeah, I mean, he was just, he was all over the place. Just, you know, it, 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 he, he has invigorated the franchise that was probably struggling to find an identity after Anthony Davis wanted out and they had to, 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 to trade him away to the Lakers. Um, and I look, think it, that it helps matters. that the Pelicans are just obliterating opponents whenever he's on the floor. Right. I mean, there's definitely a case to consider him. I'm, I'm not going to begrudge anyone who put him on the ballot, just given how incredible that small sample has been. Yeah, so uh, didn't make either of ours, though, and that ultimately displaced him from the composite. So who was number 10 in the composite? Number 10 was another guy where only one season gets considered, uh, and that was David West. Uh, he was ninth for both you and I. He was 10th for the fans. Uh, but we only get to count that one 2010-11 season in which he played just 70 games. He averaged 18.9 points, 7.6 rebounds, and 2.3 assists. It's unfortunate that we don't get to count those first seven years of his career, which include the only two all-star seasons of his career. But those are the rules and you know we made them and we're not going to break them no that's where that's where you deflect we don't make the rules we're just trying to follow them no we we do make the rules we can own those just the rules are bad <laughs> yeah look it was a really good season and seventh i know these aren't the end all be all as we mentioned all the time but seventh in win shares despite only playing one season for uh excuse me tenth in win shares for the decade and so like that's enough to squeak them into the, to the top 10 and immediately in my opinion and this was a, a uh, a situation where, as we've already said, we could reward guys that haven't spent as much time in the uniform because, one, they were really good, and, two, they're not really beating out anyone that deserves it more. I don't think you can be angry that David West makes this list instead of 
Zion Williamson or instead of an Emeka Okafor. Like that's not something that is going to rankle people. David West though, just like, did he ever miss a long two? I don't, I think he just shot a hundred percent from there for his career. Especially not during this season. Um, <laughs> even though, even though he didn't make the all-star team like he did in 2008 or 2009, this was arguably as well as he played while wearing a new Orleans uniform. I, I think it was the best he played on defense, maybe the best he played on offense, given that mid range game and, and the passing skills that had continued to, to develop. Um, he, he had more of a handle on operating out of the high post and, and hitting teammates in stride rather than trying to force the action. Um, and as, as you mentioned that, that long two always seemed to find nylon. Uh, he probably doesn't deserve to be called a star or a superstar during this age 30 season, but he was pretty damn good. Right. Always an underrated passer, as you sort of already mentioned. And then just to reemphasize a long two thing, 49% shooting from 16 feet out to the three point line. And that accounted for basically one quarter of his shots. One of those players where even though the times were different, it's kind of just like, what happens if you just scooted out a few feet to the three point line and just took more of those? Because it feels like he could have been one of the players that, that shot well from beyond the arc consistently. And we saw that towards the end of his career in his final three seasons. And look, these accounted for, I'll say a, an incredibly small share of his shots, but 42.9% from deep in one season with San Antonio and then 37.5% with the Warriors in, in each season that he spent there. Again, the sample is incredibly small. We're talking about nine of, I think, 25 shots, uh, 23 shots. So those aren't a ton but it feels like he was someone who always could have expanded that range. And even looking at some of the more meat and potato seasons of his career in Indiana as well, it, it, I'm just still, I don't want to say baffled because I know the game was different then, but you know, 2013, 2014 would, would have been that crazy to be like, Hey, David West, you need to launch 103 pointers. I don't think so. And I would have liked at, to have seen him do it. At the same time though, I, he was one of those players where I don't have as many qualms with his, him taking those shots just because he was such a consistent threat from those areas. And even if you're sacrificing from a purely numerical standpoint, points per possession by shooting 46% or whatever the exact number was from 16 feet and beyond, forcing defenses to pay attention to those spaces matters and ups the efficiency of the offense in other areas. I, I think he was above the threshold at which I'm comfortable with him taking those shots. Would it have been nice if he stepped back and started making threes instead of twos? Sure. But I don't think it was like a detriment to the offense or anything that he was taking them with such frequency given his accuracy. No, and he was still, you know, looking at mo most of his career, particularly in New Orleans, a power forward who can space the floor out to 20 feet or whatever it is. That's that's a floor spacer during it that is. time. It is. And, and speaking of floor spacers, our number nine guy in these rankings is DeMarcus Cousins. Uh, so we're, we're actually moving from a 70-game sample to a 65-game sample in a Pelicans uniform, but that's just how this episode is going to go. Uh, he was 7th in the fan vote. He was 8th for me. He was 10th for you. Yeah, I just felt like he, while he was there, it just, uh, he played more games, I believe, than, than David West during this time. Oh, no, he actually did not through his, like, Basically, I guess you would call it one season because he didn't he didn't finish his second season because of his injury and then was traded during the <laughs> during the 2017 All-Star game. That was a moment. I'll I'll always remember that. He was an absolute beast before his Achilles injury. Uh the season that he started with the New Orleans Pelicans and look, even the season that he finished 
25.2 points, 5.4 assists, 12.9 rebounds, 1.6 steals, 1.6 blocks, and he's shooting 35.4% from three on 6.1 attempts per game that year and still hitting 53% of his twos with someone who could put the ball on the floor from above the break and take guys off the dribble. That's just, for someone not only a six foot, 10 inch big man, but someone who had the heft that he did just so nimble footed. One of the most, I think, skilled and dominant offensive bigs in, in recent memories. And definitely one of the more um, impactful ones in, in NBA history. The fact that the Pelicans were still like fighting for their playoff lives at the time when, when he went down, I don't know if that Mars this at all. Maybe the sample size we've all we've already talked about. Um, the on-off splits they could get a little wonky with him during that one season. So I understand that there's a level of complexity to this, but he was just as looking at an individual level, just so absolutely dominant on offense. And so I he was an easy inclusion for me, but I just thought it almost felt like his tenure in New Orleans ended up not really meaning anything because he didn't he didn't come back and he didn't do what um, he was intended to do which was put them over the the top I feel like 2017-18 DeMarcus Cousins was the fully idealized version of Boogie it was everything he'd worked on throughout his tumultuous time in Sacramento coming together and to just this totally dominant force I don't think his impact measured up with this comparison, but in terms of the combination of physicality, finesse, overpowering power, and skill, he felt like the closest thing that we'd seen to Shaquille O'Neal since Shaquille O'Neal. Um, again, not saying that he he made a similar impact, but just in terms of like playing style and those combination of physical attributes, he was just this overwhelming force who was so much more than just this physical specimen who could overpower opponents. He understood how to play the game and, and how to leverage his skills in the most useful way possible. And it's just such a shame that that time was cut short because it felt like before those injuries and before he moved away from the team that he and Dave and Anthony Davis were really starting to figure out how to make their partnership, not just work, but Excel. That was such, that was so weird too, because the Pelicans then go on to the playoffs and sweep the Blazers that season without DeMarcus Cousins. And so would they have gotten out of that series with him? I would say probably, because I don't know that their defensive approach to Damian Lillard changes. And then he clearly wasn't ready for that volume of, of trapping that New Orleans was throwing at him. Does he help them though in that series at all? They never would have beaten them, let's be honest, but does he help them at all in that uh, series against who they played? Was that the Warriors? I believe that they played. It so, was. So that's just fascinating to consider is if he's healthy one, he's probably still there. Is Anthony Davis still there? That's sort of like this. There are a ton of inflection points throughout this decade that could have directed Anthony Davis out the door. But if the Marcus cousins, re if Marcus cousins, one never gets injured and then two resigns is Anthony Davis still in new Orleans. He very well could be. I mean, it's, it's so difficult to speculate on that just because we don't really know what exactly the motivations were for Davis's departure. I'm not sure that we'll really ever get an honest answer to that question until he's been retired for a while. Um, it's possible. And I, I think that's the most we can give there. Sports are coming back, and so are your chances to bet on your favorite teams and events. And there's no better place to start than our exclusive partner, Bet Online. 
Get in on the action for this week's big UFC fight, or check out odds on NASCAR, Formula One, and the Premier League. Can't wait for your team to come back? BetOnline has futures odds, including win totals, division winners, and even league championships. Or check out daily simulations of Madden and NBA 2K to watch and wager on. Visit betonline.ag and use promo code BLUEWIRE to receive your new welcome bonus. That's promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word. BetOnline, your online wagering experts. Can you take us to number eight? We are moving at a snail's pace. We've already spent forever on the bottom two players. Bottom three, well, I, I think, Honestly, I think the bottom portion of these rankings is the most interesting, especially because the sample size is about to get even smaller. Oh because we're now talking about Brandon Ingram at number eight, who his only season with the Pelicans is the one currently in progress in which he's he's played 56 games. And the breakout this season has been immense and spectacular and resulted in the first of what should be at least a couple of all-star appearances during his career where you know he's more comfortable operating off the bounce. He's more comfortable as this all-around offensive weapon who can carry a team. He's also more comfortable operating in conjunction with other primary ball handlers. It's still only 56 games. Um, the fans had Ingram up at number six, which I get because of the recency. Uh, you had him at number eight. I had him down at number 10. I just I wasn't willing to overlook the sample size quite as much here just because with with Cousins, it felt like he was so dominant and it was the result of the previous near decade that he'd spent in the NBA and it felt so sustainable. And I'm not I'm just not quite sure I'm there yet with Ingram, especially given the current roster composition and how much could change as as Zion continues his emergence, as Lonzo Ball continues his development to, into a player who unquestionably impacts the winning cause and, and other things like that. He, I, one, I've always been a Brandon Ingram stan, and so maybe that accounts for me putting him a little bit higher. He's also been really good, which helps. And I echo everything you said. Uh, the Pelicans have even now been posting photos of him hitting an off-the-dribble three. And so now that some of his off-the-dribble twos are going down, and he just has a more willing... Uh, you know, touch from more uh, from beyond the arc off the catch. If you sprinkle in an off the dribble three now, it becomes like it almost feels like game over. And they're like, he could do more defensively, I guess, if he were stronger, but he's still kind of a disruptor on that end. And I feel like he could be, I, I do get the sense that he's probably better off in one on one situations, but I also feel like he is smart enough to be a good team defender as well. This year, though, 24.3 points, 4.3 assists per game with. 59 true shooting prior to this year those are benchmarks that have only been hit by one player in his age 22 or younger season you edited the article i put this in so i'm curious as to whether you know who that one player is i should given that i just edited this last night but 24 points four assists on 59 true shooting one other player until this season has done that in his age 22 season or younger i mean is it lebron it's michael jordan even even better, arguably, maybe about the same. Arguably, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Let's sprinkle in a little goat debate using Brandon Ingram as the launch point, uh, the springboard for it. I wonder if that's happened since he moved on from the Lakers. <laughs> the the other thing I wanted to touch on that you already hit that I think is a really big deal is his ability to play alongside other players, and his catch and shoot three is a big part of that. Uh, the improvement there. But that's always been a struggle because he's always been someone who could get to his spots, just wasn't maybe the best finisher, and he's he's hitting. He's just a better shot maker this year. That's helped his game so much because I think if you watched him, even if you didn't necessarily like him, it was someone who seemed like he had a feel for the game just because of how he could get to his spots with the ball in his hands. Now you've plugged in 
not just other ball handlers, but someone in Zion Williamson who does, he's hit some threes this year, and I'll never forget his first game draining 4-4. That was absolutely spectacular. But it compromises the spacing, and it's another guy who's better off with the ball in his hands, um, or even as a play finisher, just needs to operate inside the arc. And it's mostly worked. Brandon Ingram's efficiency has dropped in the minutes that he's played with Zion Williamson, but it hasn't cratered, and he hasn't been making this uh, diminutive impact in those minutes, or you haven't seen him look terrible. And moving forward, uh, provided he's just willing to shoot threes off the catch like Lonzo Ball is now, which has also helped the Pelicans, this ends up being what I think could be a really feckened uh, partnership so uh, the level of improvement that ingram has shown this season i really do truly believe it's for real and for the pelican's sake you better hope it is because he's getting the max uh when when free agency kicks off this offseason yeah i was gonna say assuming that he comes back on the max deal that he's inevitably going to get as a restricted free agent the pieces feel like they're in place for the pelicans to become like a dynastic force assuming developments go right which is always a question, assuming health, which is especially a question when Ingram and Zion Williamson are involved. But these pieces fit together so well. If Ingram can continue developing as this off-the-ball weapon who also thrives on it, if if Zion continues to just wreak havoc whenever he's on the court, Lonzo Ball is a perfect fit next to those two more ball-dominant forwards. And I'm going to throw Jackson Hayes in here too, because even if he hasn't shown that much during his rookie season, what we have seen has been really impressive. And if he can be that like almost DeAndre Jordan-esque force in the middle with a bit more shooting range, like that fits so perfectly next to those other incumbents. The I, Where I diverge from you is that I'm probably not as high yet on the fit of these of these uh, players just because we have to see Lonzo Ball and Ingram like, probably keep up this um, efficiency from deep off the catch for another season. And Lonzo Ball's always been good, so I'm not saying that they're bad, but because you have Drew Holiday, because you have Zion Williamson. And then the other thing where I diverge is I don't think Jackson Hayes long-term can be on this team for them to to reach their best. Uh, it's not I, He'll probably get better on defense and won't foul every single person known to man, but if you have you know, him and Zion on the court at the same time, you're giving up a lot of spacing there. And then if Brandon Ingram or Lonzo Ball uh, sort of slump off in the shooting department. That becomes an issue. And like, look, let's just Brandon Ingram, Lonzo Ball, Drew Holiday. Let's all say they're good to above average shooters, but they're not like these lights out shooters. And so things get a little tight, I would believe. I'm certainly open to the take, though, because when you look at individually, especially their top four guys, Lonzo, Brandon Ingram, Drew Holiday, and Zion Williamson, that just feels like a core looking at all the talent collectively uh, that can really run roughshod in the West at some point. And you could even argue that the Pelicans already have three top 30 players, at least this season. It all depends on, because look, Drew and Ingram relative to the rest of the field, top 30 players in my book, hands down. Zion is sort of the wild card because he's played in 19 games. So, so how do you view him? But I'm, I'm with you, but I'm, I, there is still a level of skepticism where I'm fascinated to see what happens the rest of this year, but also what happens next season. Yeah, I believe in Lonzo's shooting improvements and that he is going to continue improving there. And I, I just I trust Zion's work ethic and and drive to keep improving. It wouldn't surprise me at all if he was a knockdown three point shooter as soon as next year. I, I would I agree with you there too, and my guess would be that the top four all work out. I'm just not as high on Jackson Hayes. I mean, it just plays with a lot of energy, and maybe in lineups without Zion, you can get more out of him. 
I just don't think he's going to end up being the long-term answer in the starting lineup at the five. Maybe that'll be Zion, or, or if it's not him, it needs to be somebody else. I don't think it's Derek Favors either, either, even though those two have worked well together. There just needs to be more of an element of floor spacing, I think, if you're going to put Zion at the four. Well, let's check back in on this in about three years and move ahead to, to number seven in our rankings for the time being. We are about to switch course dramatically because the first three, really four, if you include Zion, players that we've talked about are all these one-season wonders. And now we're shifting to each one more. Uh, Moore was, where was he in the fan ballot? He was, oh, that's right. He was not there because he was 11th. He was seventh for me. He was up at fifth for you. I'm assuming that's in part due to the thereness factor, fifth in minutes played, and also just because he's been such an effective specialist as a three-point shooter. Right, and they're... When you look at the different iterations of this team that he's navigated, 40.4% from three during his time in New Orleans, 51.4% on twos. They've had him handle the ball to varying degrees. Doesn't need to do it so much the past two seasons, um, but in the previous two, there was more of that. And then there was a time where they needed him to defend wings. That's also something that hasn't happened so much um, this year, and his role has declined because they're so deep, and he clearly doesn't factor into their future. But he's been there, and he's been... Good. He's he's a plug-and-play role player, and there's a ton of value in that, particularly if they're going to shoot as well as he does from three. But I say he provides functional shooting. No, you don't want him you know, firing up, coming around screens, or, or off the dribble. Still, uh, the, 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 this all matters, and the Pelicans have needed like stability on the margins. He's provided it. It's because they haven't had that um, stability at the top that they've sort of floundered so much during this decade. So I was a little bit surprised, or I won't say a little bit, I'm very surprised that he finished 11 on the fan ballot. I even get putting Zion in there, but just the thereness and the quality role play alone, I, I thought would get him there. Now I know um, the host of the In the Know podcast for Blue Wire, they are not Ichwan Moore fans. Uh, Shamit Dua, who great analysis of the Pelicans, but I remember talking to him once and he just wasn't a Ichwan Moore guy. And so maybe there's... Must there's, be a Hoosier. <laughs> maybe there's something there like that I'm missing. Um, and because it's, you know, he's not like a great defender, but he was also just overstretched in what he was asked to do. And so I'm not sure what there would be to just dislike. If you were expecting him to be something he wasn't, where you think you don't live up to his contract, I think they got him at four and 32. I don't know if you would call that a steal. And I don't even know if it can be consensus market value. I would say that it's not this, demonstrative overpay and that he's failed to live up to it yeah i mean let's get out of the way right away that this is to be taken with a grain of salt because basketball references positional determinations are sometimes a little bit shaky and often just determined by height but there's value in a guy who spent 23 percent of his minutes with new orleans at the one and 69% of the two and 8% of the three because he can fill so many different roles. He's capable of plugging gaps within the starting lineup. He's capable of taking on a bigger role with those second units and making sure that you know these, these leads aren't going to be squandered when the bench is asked to play. Um, at the same time, it's, it's easy to forget that he exists uh, just when you're thinking about the last decade of Pelicans basketball. No, and, and that's, both, that's both a compliment and an insult because his ceiling isn't particularly high. But I think there's also value in being a forgettable player by not making mistakes. You know, it's not that he's uninvolved and, and can be forgotten about. It's that you just don't worry about him when he's on the court, both as a positive and as a negative. That was like just a fantastic way of phrasing anything. It's okay to be a forgettable player when you're forgettable because you didn't stand out for anything incredibly bad. I like it. 
Yeah, I mean, how many how many times have we watched players who don't belong on the court at a high level NBA game, and it's like, wow, like you really stand out because you're just functioning as a turnstile, or because you're just jacking up these two pointers and they are not hitting anything but iron. Like, there's there's value into just filling your role seamlessly and and not standing out. Uh, I'm I'm totally with you. I'm I'm I remain flabbergasted would actually be the proper word here that he was not on the fan ballot. Yeah, he rose as high as fifth on a couple of ballots, but for the most part, he was left off. Was I the one? There was like I can't even remember at this point. Yes, you did have him fifth, but you were not alone. You're welcome. Was I got you in the fan voting? There was a huge drop off after him. Um, Like he was one of the guys who was at least in the tier that included eleven players, but then there was a gigantic drop off to Rajon Rondo in twelfth place. Rajon Rondo will not be appearing in the top 10, but Tyreek Evans will be because he's checking in at number six. He was number nine for the fans. He was number six for me, and Dan had him all the way up at number four. Yeah, look, there's relative to everyone else who makes this list, the Vernus factor helped him. Fifth in win shares for the decade with with the Pelicans. Uh, He was also pleasantly seventh in minutes, so that's going to help him as well. And... Yeah, he was seventh, seventh in minutes, excuse me. Battled injuries there, another one of the like the, the remnants of, hey, they tried to rebuild too quickly around Anthony Davis and expedite that thing before they should have. Um, but his years in New Orleans, you know, the, the first two, and he was actually more available than I remember in New Orleans. Eric Gordon's the one that battled a ton of injuries. But in his, his two full seasons there, 15.6 points, 5.9 assists, Shot 47.2% on twos, did not shoot the three ball well. Uh, and then it was also kind of the boomerang because he comes back He comes back in uh, 2017. He was part of the DeMarcus uh, Cousins trade. No, or no, did they trade him? That, oh, and he was there for full three seasons. I'm sorry. I'm looking at my wrong note here. So f- three full seasons, 15.5 points, six assists, 47% on twos. I think for the as many jumpers as he took, that's not too shabby. Uh, he only played in 25 games in 2015, 2016. And then it was funny that they sent him back to the, to the Sacramento Kings in that DeMarcus Cousins trade. That's just the, that's the footnote. It doesn't really matter. So that, that thereness definitely works in his favor. And I understand that he represents some of their flawed thinking, but he wasn't like this terrible player with them. If he could have shot the three ball better and he did in his final full season, 38.8% from three on, on fair volume. But if he could have shot the three ball better, we're talking about someone who in the lexicon of the entire NBA just rates a lot higher, but someone who would have been infinitely more useful to the Pelicans as well. Whenever I watched Tyreek Evans, whether it was with the Sacramento Kings during that phenomenal rookie season or with the Pelicans or, you know, with Memphis or Indiana in his last season, I always, was left with the impression that he should be better at defense than he actually was. And I think that was especially true in New Orleans, where he was taking on an even bigger offensive role, asked to function as more of a playmaker with some limited pieces around him, that he almost forgot that he needed to dedicate some of his attention and energy to the defensive end. And you know, just given you know his 6'6", 220-pound frame that was you know, he was, he was muscular, he was strong, he was quick, both laterally and in a straight line. Like it felt like he should have been an impact defender in the backcourt who could switch onto bigger players and that he never was made him kind of disappointing in my eyes. And I wonder if that's why I had him 
a little bit lower than you here, even if the numbers seem to indicate that he should be higher. Just like I couldn't get my own bias out of the way here. I think that's totally fair. It was I, I do remember too thinking when he was in Sacramento, especially New Orleans, he actually wasn't bad during that. Well, he was fantastic overall that one year he spent in Memphis, but he wasn't bad defensively that that year. Uh, but it, he did seem like someone who always had the tools to be more on the less glamorous side of the floor than than he ever really was. Speaking of great defenders, though, let's move on to Chris Paul at number five. Um, this is very much buoyed by the fan vote uh, that had him at number three and even gave him four spots in first place. Um, I did have him exactly at number five. You had him down at number seven, and he is the best example of the one-season star for the Pelicans in this decade. It, it sucks that we can't include the first five seasons of his career as fantastic as they were, because if we were talking about an all-time New Orleans franchise rankings, he would be number one. Uh, I, I, don't th- I don't think you can put Anthony Davis ahead of him. You can't put Zion ahead of him yet. You could put Ingram um, ahead of him, though, when there's a case. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe even Boogie. But yeah, I mean, we're only looking at the one season before the failed trade to the Lakers and the subsequent trade to the Clippers. And during that year, he played 80, 80 games. He led the league in steals. He averaged 15.9 points and 9.8 assists. It was not his best season. Um, it did lead to a playoff appearance and a first-round exit for the then New Orleans Hornets, who lost um, in six games to the Lakers uh, that season. But you know, it, it was tough to put him any higher than this, as much as he meant to the franchise and as good as he was, because we had to separate those early years from this one. Yeah, and I, I when I looked at his numbers for this season— because he was always going to kind of fall in the middle for me. I don't have qualms that he ends up at five at, at all. Again, this was a ranking of oppor- opportunity when looking at the entire franchise. I am I did not remember that this was the year he averaged under 16 points per game. It, like Chris Paul doesn't need to score to necessarily impact the game, but he's also kind of, you know, he has that season, 2008-2009, uh, where he's just, he was a monster that year, 22.8 points and 11 assists. Always felt like someone who maybe should have probably scored more, where it's like, you know, hey, Paul, you definitely could have and probably should have taken, like, on that iteration of the Pelicans, what, 15 shots a game? Definitely not 11.6 per game, which where he was at for that year. Just still, though, I know he has a weird reputation as a teammate, although it seems like things are hitting nicely for him in Oklahoma City. Uh, but... He, just such a great player. And this year specifically, he's a case as a top 10 guy. Again, there are a lot of superstars who were injured, uh, so that helps. But he's going to make an all-NBA team, which is just absolutely ridiculous since the age 34 season. And he just still, I feel like, defends with the same kind of mentality that he had during his prime, uh, the beginning of which was spent with the uh, the Hornets slash this Pelicans franchise. So I Chris Paul is one of my favorite players of all time. And even now, just his New Orleans. I'll second days, that. Just his New Orleans days, just so fun to watch. And like, if you go back and watch those highlights, he, you know he's still cooking people now. But he just absolutely dismantled, deconstructed defenses uh, during his time in in New Orleans. So I have no qualms about him being a, a higher than I actually put him. This was one where if you even had players with a larger sample size that deserve to be here, you could justify putting Chris Paul, you know, not Ingram, not Boogie, but Chris Paul can basically be ahead of anybody in this lone season because he's just so damn good. There are certain players in NBA history where you feel like if they want to get to a spot, 
They're going to get to it in an advantageous way. And Chris Paul is near the top of that list. I think Allen Iverson might be at the absolute top of that list, in my opinion. But like Paul's ability to to work his pet play, you know, that that lateral movement alongside the lane to one of the elbows and then that kind of leaning kind of fadeaway jumper. Like he gets that whenever he wants now and he got it whenever he wants back then. Yeah. I just, just so incredibly consistent with his game. Like he hasn't, did he ever have a bad year? We could talk about availability because he's had, but he's never had a bad year. I mean, you know what they say, like smallish point guards always age really well. Yeah, definitely. Him and Kyle That's Lowry like are just kind of defying. Right? Yeah. So, and look, because Paul's prime basically started right away, the fact that he's aged so well, I know there have been injuries. Again, he might have cost the Rockets a series against the Warriors because of a hamstring injury, but he started out his age 20 season. So the fact that he's just aged so well, uh, despite being the undersized point guard, is, is actually incredibly impressive. And really, the look, the shot making – you know, I, I think he, you could, it's safe to say he's lost a step on offense where the, just the, you know, really breaking ankles, it, it's still possible, but it's just a different kind of baking of these bigs when they switch on to him. Defensively, I feel like, yes, he's not the same, but he just, it still feels so exhaustive watching him. And that's just wild to say. This has nothing to do with his ranking in this exercise, but I feel like it needs to be noted. The other thing that needs to be noted is a smart team would actually trade for him. I'm like, his contract is not great. Two years and 85.6 million left. I think if I'm a team though, like if Giannis signs the Supermax this year and I'm the heat, I'm trying to figure out a way to get Chris Paul. Or if I'm Utah, I'm trying to figure out a way to get, you know, use Mike Conley as the salary anchor to get Chris Paul. Uh, Milwaukee, you probably have to give up your entire team because of a lack of uh, salary matching pieces at the level you really need to bring back Chris Paul's salary. I'm, I'm trying to get Chris Paul too. He's so good. And I'm well, just convinced it's bold that it, of you to offer Giannis for Chris Paul there. <laughs> anyone but Giannis or Middleton, but you basically would need to trade anyone but Giannis or Middleton. It's not that stark, but it, it's pretty bad. I've gone through the scenarios. I just feel like he's going at least one of the next two years are going to be all NBA caliber. If not both of them, I really think that there's a chance for him to do that. I, I wouldn't be surprised at all, but before we move on to number four, since this is already going to be, a ridiculously long episode about just the Pelicans. I, I have to get all my soapbox for a second here because I still, I just, I hate the narrative that Chris Paul has been bad or unsuccessful in the playoffs and that that's used to diminish his legacy or all time standing. Like this one season with the Pelicans is such a perfect microcosm of how he didn't necessarily have postseason success as a team, but he sure as hell did as an individual. If you look at his stats in the series, the first round series against the Lakers that they lost four to two, he averaged 22 points, 6.7 rebounds, 11.5 assists, and 1.8 steals. He shot 54.5% from the field and 47.4% from three. He was absolutely spectacular. He was so fantastic on both ends of the floor. Um, I, I believe it's been a while since I've looked this one up, but I think they they outscored the Lakers by a significant amount with him on the floor. It just wasn't enough to swing the series. And like, that's going to be held against him because it's a first round loss. Oh no, Chris Paul lost in the playoffs again. Like as soon as you dive, like it's, it's not even like a deep analysis that's needed to kind of refute the idea that he's been bad in the playoffs. It just requires you to go slightly below the surface level and not just look at series results. And this is the perfect example. Yeah, I just, when you look at the context, some of the Clippers collapses were just bad. Uh, that one against the Rockets. 
I can't remember what year it was. Was that 2015? Whatever it was. That was absolutely terrible. But here's here's something. Of anyone who's played in at least 100 playoff games, Chris Paul is seventh in win shares per 48 minutes. Again, not an end-all marker, but just for reference, the six players in front of him, number six, Wilt. Number five, Jerry West. Number four, Magic Johnson. Number three, Kawhi Leonard. Number two, LeBron James. Number one, Michael Jordan. And just, it's, a, it's a fairly decent list. It's okay. And look, the, the players behind him are okay. David Robinson, 8. KD, 9. Steph, 10. Tim Duncan, 11. Kareem, Oh, you 12. lost me, though, because Steph has been bad in the finals. So Yeah, he was terrible during that finals against the Cavaliers. No finals and, MVPs. So why is he there? Uh, can you actually take us to, what are we up to, number four? Number four. Somehow only number four. And that is uh, Eric Gordon, who was number four for the fans, number four for me, and number six for you. Probably another beneficiary of the Vernus factor because he's third in minutes played for the decade behind only Drew Holiday and Anthony Davis. But he was also good even if he didn't really want to be in New Orleans. I just remember that when he signed the offer sheet with Phoenix and was like, Phoenix is where I want to be. And it just, it seems like Pelicans fans genuinely did not like him when he left. And look, part of that was he he was so unavailable there. But during his five years in New Orleans that fall under this decade, 55 point, uh, 55, <laughs> 15 point three points per game, 3.3 assists, did not shoot really well on two-pointers, 43.9%. And part of that is he's never been like the greatest finisher at the rim, but 39% on threes. So look, I, I almost – I wanted to put Chris Paul in front of him, but I had a rule that Chris Paul had to average at least 13 shot attempts per game in his lone season to – to use him, but he didn't. I, I reluctant. That's, that's another fair rule. Like we're only making fair rules for these exercises. I'm actually impressed though that he ends up at number four in the composite, just because I couldn't put him any higher than six. Um, specifically because it seemed like one. There's the you know relative to other people on this list. Yes, he he was available, but that's because he played five seasons there. It's not like on average he just wasn't available, and then it just really seems like he never connected or never wanted to be on that team, and that the, the fans didn't like him, and so I. I couldn't put him any higher. I even thought six might have been a little too ambitious. I think it was partially that and also partially that he was disappointing. Um, he came from Los Angeles and the, the expectations were so high because of what he just accomplished on the Clippers. You know, This was a high-flying guy who could attack the basket and finish well above the rim while also taking and making a bunch of threes off the bounce. It seemed like he was the next like top tier shooting guard who was going to challenge the Dwayne Wades and Brandon Roy's and, and you name them at the position for supremacy at the position. Uh, and then the knee injuries kind of sapped both his availability and some of that bounce. And it took him a little bit to adjust to being more of a role player, but he got there by the end of his time with New Orleans before he moved on to the Rockets. So even if the start was disappointing, I think he ended up justifying his place there. Maybe begrudgingly, which is also going to hold him down. But it didn't It didn't hold him down in these rankings, which, like you, I was surprised by. I have nothing to add on Eric Gordon. Show solidarity with Ryan the Anderson. New Orleans fans to move on to Ryan Anderson, yes. Ryan Anderson was third in the composite. He was fifth for the fans. He was third for both of us. So if you want to take it away here. Consistent floor spacer at the four, 37.1% shooting while he was in New Orleans, and he, he jacked over 1,400 threes during his seasons there. I will say uh, that he the game passed him by very quickly. 
And a lot of that was because he just, he, re- he really couldn't move on defense and he was never going to be, um, he was just never going to be, you were never going to be able to keep him at the four. As the league progressed towards smaller power forwards, it just became untenable to keep him at the four and you weren't going to put him at the five because that would have been a defensive disaster. So that was kind of sad to see, but he look, he got paid at the right time, right before he went to Houston. And the distance on his threes, I know that was really a bigger thing when he went to Houston, but that helped while he was in New Orleans as well. And the consistency with, with which he scored, um, did you want him to do more as a rebounder? I guess maybe, but like you look, he was playing with Anthony Davis. Like th- not all those boards are going to be available, and so to you know over his his role de- diminished um, a little bit towards the end of his time there. But he spent he ended up spending I think it was four seasons there. Yeah, correct, four seasons and sixteen points a game, and hit like I said, thirty seven percent of his threes was forty six point three percent on twos, and could always do a little bit more inside the arc than given credit for. But the other thing that made him complicated is just not someone who was adept at moving the ball, even from standstill positions. You couldn't even trust him to do that. And I think that factored into why the game ended up essentially blowing him by. Yeah, I think at the beginning of his time in New Orleans, Ryan Anderson kind of became the NBA's first like true stretch four. You know, that's a label that we can apply retroactively to guys like Bob McAdoo or Jack Sigma or Bill Lambeer, maybe even Larry Bird, definitely Dirk Nowitzki, but they, they had more to their game. I think Anderson was one of the first, maybe the first stretch fours whose value almost solely stemmed from his ability to provide floor spacing, um, both from the three-point line and from a couple of feet beyond it. Uh, but as the NBA continued to trend towards that kind of, role and and having so many players who filled that role his inability to do other things meant that he failed to maintain that same level of impact for very long so as fantastic as that 2013-14 season was in a small sample and then 2014-15 where his shot kind of fell off a little bit his scoring definitely fell off um it the amount of time he spent as a star a fringe star level player was so small that I had trouble even cementing him in this third spot. I I like pretty strongly considered moving Eric Gordon and Chris Paul above him. They were kind of clumped together in my rankings. I don't know if any of that rambling made sense. It all made sense. And I'm, I'm totally with you on, on everything there. So uh, I do wish he would have been able to stick a a little bit longer, but when, when you can't do anything on defense and you can't even be trusted to, uh, to really, and look, when you're so far away from the basket, which, I don't know if people have considered, but when he was taking three so far away from the basket, like you can't, you don't even have that leverage of, well, at least I could put the ball on the floor and attack closeouts. You know, if you're near the timeline, like you're not beating, he's not beating anybody. So, but look, his time in New Orleans was, was great. They were smart to not resign him when it, when he entered free agency, it, it turns out, but probably not in the macro. You don't want to say that he was, when you had Anthony Davis for so much of this decade, you don't want to say that he ended up being your third best player of the decade. Right, right. Now, number two, I think, is pretty obvious, um, and it's Drew Holiday, who was number two across the board, both in the fans and and both of ours. Um, you know, he's second in minutes played by a lot. So Eric Gordon is third at 7,130 minutes. Drew Holiday has 13,718. So the awareness factor clearly supports him. The level at which he's played through multiple eras of Pelicans slash Hornets basketball is clearly in his favor. And yet, you know, I, I think that four games alone, 
could have boosted him into this number two spot. And that's the, the 2018 first round series against the Portland Trailblazers in which he just thoroughly owned Damian Lillard on both ends of the floor. You know, it, it felt like he averaged 30 points per game while holding Lillard to negative points. Like the, the discrepancy between the two was that great. And it's hard to make Damian Lillard look like that. But Holiday did. And again, like those four games alone, had he not done anything else in a New Orleans uniform, I, I think those four alone would have been enough to get him some serious consideration on these ballots. He's just auto at this point, and he's still in New Orleans, so this just, it, it works. He's just an auto, like 20.7 assists per game at this point is basically where he's at. And I've really one of the things I've respected most about his game is how adaptable he is on offense, despite not being the best shooter. He's still able to blur that line between primary option and creator and then offensive accessory. Uh, he's he's hitting a lot of unassisted threes this year, actually. I think over 44% of his three-point attempts are going unassisted, which is actually up from last year, which doesn't really make sense when you look at how many other ball handlers, specifically Lonzo Ball and Brandon Ingram, that the Pelicans have added, but that's a testament to what he can he can do. And then defensively, I know people have said that he's dropped off. I that's fine, but he's shouldering he shoulders such a heavy workload on defense that I I can't begrudge like a slight decline, and he's still at an all defense level this season specifically. The six players he spent the most time guarding include Luca, LeBron, CJ McCollum. Shea Gilgis Alexander, Damian Lillard, and Devin Booker. I mean, my goodness. So I know. I can't believe those assignments are so easy. The other thing I found interesting is two way primary usage, which is a metric developed by Nylon Calculus's Krishna Narsu. It measures the amount of time a player spends as the number one option on offense while guarding the other team's number one scorer. This season, Ben Simmons is the only player in the league with a higher two way workload than Drew Holiday. That doesn't surprise me. And, and only, he's never going to complain about it. Right. And he's just going to keep being professional and keep giving it his all on both ends. And th- I'm, I'm citing this season so much because it's basically a snapshot of his time in New Orleans. Yes, he scored less, but it doesn't matter because he played with uh, you know rotations that were in flux because he's been there since, yeah, I don't know if people remember this, but he was in the New Orleans Noel trade. He's been there since 2013. So he's had different roles, but the fact that he's taken on so much more offensively, specifically over the last you know three years, uh, there was a major jump from him in from 2017 to to 2018, and he's a borderline all star in the Western Conference. Even the fact that he's maintained that level when the guard position is so ridiculously deep across the league at this time, and I still think though that he's I would call him a top 25 player right now, fairly easily, and yet I still think he's somehow underappreciated. During this decade, only four members of the New Orleans Pelicans have made at least one all-star appearance. Chris Paul, during the only season of the decade he spent in New Orleans. Brandon Ingram during the current season. DeMarcus Cousins in 2018. And Anthony Davis has made six all-star teams. I think that we should just give Drew an honorary all-star appearance because he belongs on that list. And it's, you know, I, I feel like so many times I advocate for expanding all-star rosters, and he's yet another example of a guy who's just gotten screwed out of out of those kind of accolades because he happens to play a loaded position in the Western Conference, which is overloaded with backcourt talent. 
I see. I just don't read too much into all star appearances anymore, so I don't feel that strong. I wish. I, I wish that we didn't need to. And I think but that's it feels like they get cited so much you're, you're, in historical yeah. conversations. And that's what I agree with. You're looking at it from the perspective of people are going to talk about this, and they're going to mention, "Oh, we only made one all star game." Uh, in 2012, 2013, and that wasn't even close to his best basketball of his career. So hashtag Eastern Conference there. Yeah, I mean we're like we're guilty of doing that too. You know, it's so easy to look back at you know the the 60s and 70s and guys who we weren't around to watch play and just be like, oh, like we're going to dismiss him because he only made one All Star team or he never made an All Star team. And I just I don't want that to happen to guys like Drew Holiday and and Mike Conley and and you know other guards in the West who just haven't been Steph Curry, Russell Westbrook, James Harden, whoever else has been there. Uh, I'm totally with but you. Holiday feels like one of the most egregious examples. Yeah. And Mike Conley would be one in previous years as well. Yeah. And the Jazz hope he can get back to that level. Yeah. He um, but that. <laughs> that was another podcast. <laughs> that was another podcast. Uh, I, needless to say, he will not be appearing in the Utah Jazz episode of this series. Um, neither will yourself. Anthony Davis. Neither will Anthony Davis, who is number one. Um, pretty much unanimously, he appeared second on five ballots, third on one ballot. But other than that, you know, he was number one for both myself and Dan. He was number one on the remainder of the fan votes, and he was the very obvious inclusion. I don't. There's nothing to really talk about with him in the context of his game, but I find this incredible: is that he has 72 win shares for the decade with the Pelicans. Holiday is second at 28.6. That's that's closer to a three to one lead than it should be. That's ridiculous. Yeah, it's I mean that is. Just and, carrying a franchise. And it's it does suck the way that his tenure ended there. I am I'm like you, extremely pro player, but it does seem that he allowed that to be handled poorly. I understand he was trying to inflict more of his agency on the situation by um requesting a trade 18 months out from free agency as opposed to one year. But to do it before the trade deadline, and this is as he's at fault just as much as you know his his actual agents because I'm sure this was their plan. Not giving the Pelicans enough time to suss out a deal was disingenuous to actually getting him out of New Orleans, and it created this awkward situation that exacerbated everything. The bad feelings where Pelicans fans had he requested out over the summer, or if this had come in December, they probably would have respected it more. But because it same came so close to that 2019 trade deadline, it it really ended up damaging perception of his. Stay there. It's become about well, can you win with Anthony Davis as your best player? And look, the NBA is at fault. Yeah, for yes, that. yes, you can. Yeah. Just, just to be clear, there, <laughs> the NBA is at fault there too because threatening to fine the Pelicans for not playing Anthony Davis. Now you put him in the situation where he's playing for a team he openly didn't want to be on, and the fans are booing him. Just so many levels of awkward, and it sucks that that's how his tenure ended because I think. This could have been a situation like LeBron leaving Cleveland the second time where you could have just understood it. And it was different because it's the first time and the franchise was so invested in him. The the upshot is because of the way this thing ended and where they wound up in the lottery order, they end up with Zion Williamson. And the slightest difference could have ended up penalizing them because if he played more of the season, they'd be better. Had they traded him, they would have been worse. And so it ended up working out for them. But it was it was polarizing, fun to make jokes about, and you couldn't look away. But because of how good he actually is, and I do think how good he actually is was sort of obfuscated by playing in New Orleans. And I've been to New Orleans. I love New Orleans. But 
because he wasn't in a bigger market and consistently not in the playoffs, I wouldn't say he was underrated because he's, you're still going to find him consistently in the top seven uh, NBA player rankings. It's just now there's this perception that he can't win. It exists mostly outside of New Orleans, even if people were, you know, were, were resentful over how he left there. But that it sucks that that's what we're now we're spending time talking about is we could have done – this is a person that we should just spend 30 seconds on here because you don't need – I'm not going to say anything about the numbers you don't already know about his game, how the way he plays on defense is positionless despite, despite the fact that he's you know a pterodactyl where he's like seven feet and has the wingspan that goes on for infinity. That we're talking about this at all, but that's – I wonder if he is – on the ballots, you know, you talk about one that was where he was number two or where jokes one that put him lower. If he leaves under better circumstances, uh, is he just like the unanimous number one with no be. one? But he, I mean, he should be. But it, like a Kemba Walker situation where you remember him more, way more fondly than you do now. Right. I am going to share one stat just for fun before we say that's all, folks, and put a wrap on this episode. Um, and that's just his block standing in franchise history. So the top five in New Orleans history. Um, for block shots. Drew Holiday is actually fifth at 263. Tyson Chandler, fourth at 269. Emeka Okafor, 305. David West, 435. Anthony Davis, 1,121. He has more blocks than West, Okafor, and Chandler combined, who are the three players directly below him in that hierarchy. And that's ridiculous. But like you said, you know, we we could spend a lot of time talking about how great Anthony Davis was and is. We don't really need to, just because that kind of goes without saying. And unfortunately, it did become more interesting to talk about the exit and and what that meant for his legacy and what it meant to the team then and the ripple effects that it had on the organization. Um, and you know, I, I I wish that it had happened differently. It didn't. That is what happened, and we have to react accordingly. I'm totally with you. Do you want to take us through some honorable mentions? Can't believe we're going over an hour on the New Orleans Pelicans. Any Pelicans totally fans listening that. to this, you're you're welcome. <laughs> I, I can 100% believe that, given our history. Uh, but yes, honorable mentions. Uh, we had Etwan Moore at 11 on the fan vote. We had Rajon Rondo at 12, Al Farouk Aminu at 13, Nikola Miritich and Omer Ashik are tied at 14th. At 16th, we had a tie between Anthony Morrow and Peja Stoyakovic. Ooh, at 18th. At 18th, we had a tie between Emeka Okafor, J.J. Redick, Lonzo Ball, and Robin Lopez. 22nd, we had another big tie between Alexia Jinsa, Buddy Heald, Derek Favors, Jarrett Jack, and Trevor Ariza. Two-way tie between Jimmer Fredette and Julius Randle for 27th. Grievous Vasquez and Brian Roberts at 29th. And a three-way tie between Darius Miller, Gustavo Ayon, and Austin Rivers for 31st. I just want to say I'm excited that Brian Roberts got, got a vote. That was important. The last to me. second vote, too. <laughs> um, the other thing I'll say, and that's how I'll lead us out. And before we get out of here, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get these podcasts. Even if you're not listening on iTunes, that's a great way to help us out. Throw us a five star rating, write a review, put whatever you want in there. Talk about Adam's huge calves or critique us, say mean things. Talk about Frank Nilakina. I'm here for all the Frankie Smokes propaganda. We appreciate it all. But. I will leave you all until next time. And when we next record the Decade Ranking Series, who comes after the Pelicans? Oh, we'll be directly to the Oklahoma City Thunder because there's no NBA franchise in between. Just just kidding. Uh, the Knicks will be up next. Anyway, shout ben out might to... might not be sober for that episode. Just not, to get through it, I'm not going to be able to be sober for that episode, no. Until next time, though, we leave you with a shout out to the one, the only... Pelicans legend, huge snub from this exercise because he was sixth 
in minutes played for the decade, yet did not receive a single vote on the ballot. Dante Cunningham. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.